0: Hey, it's Kirsten. Just a quick note to tell you that this episode marks a first for Tech Talks. We're still talking about one paper, but this time I'm joined by both of the authors. So with two guests, our conversation went a little longer than usual, so we've decided to break it into two parts. Here's part one. Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, discovery, and tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by two people, Luke Stark and Jevin Hudson. Luke is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University in London, Ontario. He researches ethical, historical, and social impacts of technologies such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, Jevin is an associate at Hintz Law. Jevin's practice focuses on the intersection of privacy, security, and data ethics, with a particular experience in emerging ethical and policy issues in AI, machine learning, and computer vision. You can see where your expertise overlaps, which is great. So our goal in this series is just to take one idea, one article, and really do a deeper dive and understand the larger implications for the field of tech ethics just generally. And for today, we're going to do a deeper dive into this great article, physiognomic. Physiognomic Artificial Intelligence. So I'll mispronounce that a couple more times today. What I really liked about this paper is there's been so much in uh, the commercial area that we see just online and in research um, attempting to identify something about someone's face, like so using facial recognition and computer vision with physiognomy being the study of features of the face or the form of the body. And what I like what you differentiate these two ideas, and I'm hoping that one of you can go through a little bit of the history of both is that one is the practice of using people's outer appearance to infer interior characteristics. And you can see how computer vision would be used to do this if someone's trustworthy, if they're anxious, if they're upset, if they're happy, if they're smiling enough. And whereas phrenology is the study of mainly around the human skull, so it's just a subset of this larger area. And I was hoping if you could give a brief background on these two concepts and the racial history of these two concepts.
1: Sure, so I can. I can, ahead, in, I can jump. I can jump in on that being since being being the being, I suppose, the historian, the, the labeled historian in, in the duo. Um, <laughs> and I and I want to. I mean, first of all, thanks so much for having us. This is great. It's great to, to be able to chat. And and I want to. I also want to flag how how much great historical work there has been on physiognomy and phrenology, in especially in its kind of nineteenth century heyday, or at least its first heyday. I think one of the things we're arguing in the paper, unfortunately, is that it's coming back and having a bit of a second heyday. Mm-hmm. Um, which which is really too bad, given it was kind of discredited um, once already back back a hundred years ago. So yeah, so physiognomy um, is this idea of of being able to tell um, inner characteristics from exterior signs or signals, and it has to do with the face and the body. It also, and this is it really interestingly. Uh, you know we realized when we were doing the research it also in the 19th century had to do with things like makeup and 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 how you dressed and and this whole array of things so so physiognomy you know it was it was it was a, it wasn't just about a kind of biologically essentialist kind of set of set of questions it was also it was sort of a, a, about this general science of signs this idea of conjecturing about people and and and, can, and making inferences about people obviously you know has a long history people people make inferences about each other all the time And physiognomy in the 19th century, again, was this broad class of categories. It was actually quite hard to make scientific. And and that's one of the points that Shorna Pearl, who's written a great book about this topic, makes. Phrenology, as a subset of this kind of physiognomic impulse, was the first, I guess you could say, sort of structured attempt to... Claim scientific validity about some some aspect of the exterior of the human that then could be used to to kind of understand things about the interiority of the human about somebody's intelligence about their personality, and and that's kind of where things really uh, well I mean you could say physiognomy you, you know you can often go wrong there too and we could talk more about that but but phrenology in the late 19th century became this kind of this kind of pseudoscience right it was or see, it was seen as a science at the time by some people that tried to find these correlations between the shape of the head, the shape of the skull, and... Various kind of character traits and, and virtues, and and this this history was was, was incredibly racialized, right? Um, racialized, and also gender, right? So so the idea of what kind of skull was a, a kind of virile or or responsible skull, you know, really tracked to scientific racist ideas of the time. The idea of the people won't probably know about this, you know, the idea of of the size of the forehead as an indicator of intelligence meant that all sorts of all sorts of kind of totally spurious correlations. Got made around ethnic and racial background and intelligence, but and, and, but another thing I think that's important to flag about physiognomy and phrenology in the nineteenth century that is relevant to today's AI systems is that often these these pseudosciences were being put forward by people who consider themselves social reformers, who consider themselves to be, to be liberals, to be progressive, um, because this was a science, you know, it was, it was an organized way of classifying people It, you know, phrenologists and physiognomists, uh, phrenologists especially sort of said, well, um, we don't think everybody can possibly be, um, you know, not everybody can be at the same level of intelligence. But if we can identify people who are of lower intelligence, we can help them in different ways than we would other people. So there were these kind of putatively, supposedly liberal ideas um, that were, were pushing these technologies. But of course, actually, it's totally, I mean, uh, f- fundamentally, it's both fundamentally unsound, um, you know, fundamentally racist, classist, sexist, and and fundamentally wrong, right? Um, and, and that's why it was, it was you know, by the early part of the 20th century, mostly discredited. And so it's, it's alarming to see um, physiognomy broadly understood, you know, really take so much um take up so much so much oxygen in AI these days. And even even phrenology, even like even this the, the specific act of looking at, at at the shape of the skull, I think there was an IBM patent that talked about doing this a couple of years ago. So Interesting. unfortunately, this idea that you can tell certain intrinsic truths about the about the interiority of the individual from their exterior, their exterior features is now unfortunately again really popular.
0: It was just uh, just today, and this, tweets could have been going around yesterday, but there was uh, a whole bunch of people looking at a profile of a, uh, there was like a, a new logo for an organization where they used three people's profile pictures, and it was very much like phrenology and trying to, um, people were saying that those are male heads, those are female heads, and they were not gendered at all. And then other people were putting their own face up next to it. And then all of a sudden trying to gender and misgender those people. And so it was just, it was amazing. Now that's not AI. This was just someone taking, but the idea of phrenology uh, never dies. And it was immediately gendered. It was uh, like, it wasn't even a a beat. And then it was used in a pejorative way, you know, even though it wasn't, it was just someone's logo.
1: One one thing I would say, and maybe and you think about this too, is that one of my worries about all of these kind of physiognomic ai systems and and their you know their adver- their advertisement and their kind of hyping in the tech community is that it's it's getting people to think physiognomically when they really shouldn't be. It's promoting this idea of physiognomy in in ways that you know no one would otherwise think of, and 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 giving people this this kind of totally spurious set of characteristics and connections to latch onto. I think that's a, that's one one of the many big worries
2: I have about these technologies.
0: I think that's a great point, and Jevin, I didn't know if you could talk a little bit about some of the. Current either commercial ideas or research that you, that you guys saw and thought, well, one, we need to write a paper on this. There's always something that you read that annoys you and thinks <laughs> I, I need to do something. And then probably even more that came on along the way as you were writing this. Cause you, the, it's a great overview. I have to say, if you're ever interested of like, does this really occur? And you, you both do a very good job of cataloging. It does occur and it's prevalent. You know what I mean? Like this is yeah. very popular.
2: Indeed. And in many ways, that's what inspired the paper was the sort Mm. of every week, the sort of Twitter warfare of oh my God, why are we automating this again Uh, and going down sort of a similar rabbit hole that in many ways we need to, you know, diagnose this so we can uh, sort of stop the process. But in terms of some of these examples, we'll sort of start from sort of two in the research context, which talk about sort of basically predicting sexuality from the human face, uh, as well as political orientation, um, which are manifestly unsound. But as we categorize in the paper, in terms of commercial applications, uh, we look at sort of first and foremost sort of labor and employment, particularly the, the proliferation of automated uh, video interviewing tools that uh, purport to scan individual spaces to determine, you know, particular characteristics, like whether they're adventurous or cultured or resourceful or intellectual, all based off, you know, maybe a 30-second clip, which, you know, research since this paper has already shown that, you know, manipulating a background, like putting in a, a, a bookshelf, um, can, you know, manipulate these particular determinations. But it's particularly concerning when you see that Fortune 500 companies are leveraging these technologies for sort of entry-level interviews uh, or sort of initial barriers to employment. Uh, we also sort of break down other categories and you know, like teaching and education where, where folks are attempting to sort of scan students' faces to gauge attention uh, or, or participation in the classroom, as well as in co- instances like criminal justice, which sort of interplay with other uses of facial recognition where the goal is to sort of expand into other forms of facial analysis. We also talk about other commercial applications, um, particularly around like shoplifting, where it moves from away from, say, identifying a particular individual who might be shop- Shoplifting to say predicting or attempting to assess the likelihood of an individual from shoplifting and altogether sort of not only are these technologies in and of themselves concerning, but what is so concerning is that they are proliferating across multiple domains that have significant impacts for individuals at an individual level, but also at like a broader socioeconomic level. If, you know, an entire class of folks are subject to AI video interviewing tools that (laughs) purport to, you know, to take out these particular characteristics, like that might disparately impact particular racial groups, particular ethnic groups, uh, persons with particular disabilities. And, And sort of for us, we were talking about this yesterday, sort of the next goal now is maybe we really need a full count uh, of the ways in which these that, exist yeah. in the wild. But I think for us, is at least beginning to sketch that these play out across important domains um, that also implicate, you know, civil rights laws, other important laws, because these many of these are, you know, public accommodations based, you know, places in the public where people have access, but also mediate opportunities like jobs and, you know, other, other, you know, important social and economic opportunities.
0: Right. Yeah. I saw it because it, like employment, policing, education, you know, there is commercial, but I, I think it's also interesting for anyone listening, if you're ever teaching in this area, the higher view emotion recognition case that you cite by Drew Howell in um, Washington Post, it's, it's a great case just to teach, and I, I find the students are extremely upset about it. And, so, and, and they really do a great job at that age, say 20 to 27, if I'm teaching the master students, to really, um, they're really quite good at identifying some of the more individual harms, not always societal harms, but a lot of the individual harms.
2: And I think as well, I mean, students over the past, I mean, over the pandemic and previously being subject to, you know, automated proctoring tools that are attempting to, you know, scan faces to determine whether someone is suspicious, whether they're cheating, all sort of fall under, you know, sort of the penumbra of physiognomic artificial intelligence when we're attempting to scan the human body and make these determinations that we simply can't make using artificial intelligence and machine learning. And that ultimately, I think students... Bear the brunt of. They witness how bluntly these systems don't work, how the failures of these systems have like. Abject consequences for folks, whether it's failing an exam or the folks who've been trying to take the bar exam over the past three years and the nightmares uh, of trying to deal with those particular facial analysis systems. But I think students, particularly students who have gone through the pandemic, sort of feel the brunt and impact of these technologies.
0: Yeah, and you also, this is, I mean, there is an immediate harm. You don't get a job, you're misidentified in some way. you, You also, before you get to the possible remedies, including banning it but the possible remedies you do a nice job also of talking about the harms like the general i'm putting harms in like a lowercase letter harms like so just a broad idea of the wrongs of using computer vision to guess something about someone and all that encompasses because it's more than just not getting the job it, it can be an insult to the dignity in a different way
1: yeah so one thing, one thing that's really interesting about this conversation, and actually, when I, when I talk about this or I give interviews about this topic, often what people say to me is, "They say, well, humans can make inferences about people. We do that all the time. So why can't the computer?" Right? And 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 this is actually something that that one of the one of the famous papers, sort of the kind of famous physiognomic AI papers. Um, the one about sexual orientation, they they say this in the paper, which we 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 talk about. You know, they sort of say, well, humans are humans can do this, and so you know, of course, if computers do it at scale, they'll do it better than humans. And this is <laughs> this is like, a, okay. I think from a kind of philosophy of science, history of science perspective, this is like that's on a kind of fundamental misreading or misunderstanding. Of two kind of different epistemological modes, right? That that conjecture about the past is always backward looking, right? It it always involves it's if, if it's subjective, it's going to involve some kind of positionality, some kind of bias, right? And and it's not, you know, and so 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 you can't make these kind of claims, you know, across many data points um and going from a kind of high-level percentage back to any one individual, right? That's called the ecological fallacy in statistics. And of course, at a kind of common sense level, we can think about our own lives. We all know that we make inferences not always so well about people, and even not so well about people we know and and love right you know much great art and literature is all about the misconceptions and you know problematic inferences that want you know a spouse makes about another that children make about parents like we know we're not good at this even with the people we know really well and have seen really well and so this kind of inference making i think just you know just doesn't it doesn't work in the same way because computers can't put together the kind of longitudinal data they often hold on individuals with the sorts of holistic judgments or or kind of Contextualized judgments that humans can do easily, right? It's just it's just two different epistemological realms, and so anybody claiming that computers can do that the way humans can is is selling you you know a little snake oil, um and and so yeah and so when you build these big apparatuses of judgment of automated judgment or automated decision making on the, this core erroneous assumption, assumption this wrong assumption, then the whole edifice just crumbles right. It's it's it's, it's built on sand. Um, so I think that's one of the things we were trying to really get a get. At in this paper, which is it's not just that use cases can be a problem. It's not just that like there there are technical issues around precision. You know, in terms of, of you know, there's been lots of work on that in the context of AI fairness. It's that conceptually these technologies just are not appropriate. They just don't do the thing they say that they claim, they claim to do. And you know, and as such, they're just kind of conceptually bankrupt.
0: Right. And I I like your point in the paper that because we think we can do the same, that we can get someone's gender. Race, we can guess if they're trustworthy. If if I'm a retailer, I think I can guess who's shoplifting, if who's untrustworthy. That we we think we can judge others. What you say, a characters, psychological states, and demographic traits. It makes it attractive. We think that the AI should be able to do the same thing. It kind of explains the attraction of being like, oh, I knew I could do that. It reminded me actually of predictive policing. That police officers think that they know where the crime occurs and who's going to commit the crime. And so, why couldn't you automate that? I mean, they they do it all the time. You know what I mean? Like, and it's the same type of like. Well, I can guess who's trustworthy. I can guess what gender someone is. I can guess their race, ethnicity, um, and so I think it's actually possible, even though you're pointing out and do a great job in the paper to say this has always been pseudoscience. Like the entire endeavor has been pseudoscience.
1: Yeah, no, a police officer might think that, but they they're wrong. They probably they probably can't. No, right? right, I mean, yeah, right. Or anybody? I mean, I think it's I think it's really telling. I think it's really telling that the figure we would think of in terms of, of like this inferential mode, is Sherlock Holmes, right? Mm-hmm. A detective. We don't mention this in the paper, but there's some other, some other stuff I've, I've been working on, this comes up. You know, Sherlock Holmes, the detective. Detective stories really prime us to believe that that some, some special individual can infer things with, you know, uncanny accuracy. And of course, for Sherlock Holmes is fictional. Of course, Every fictional every fictional detective from Conan Doyle to Agatha Christie to uh, Joe Nesbo, of course they can do a good job inferring. The narrative that they've been placed in means means that they can do a good job, but humans can't do that, right? We don't live in a narrative like that. Um, we create narratives in our brains and, and socially, but we don't do it. It's not the same as a, as a, a novel. The other thing, and this, this isn't in the paper, but Jeff and I was thinking about this the other day, is that when we interact with people... It's not a one-way street, right? So when we're interacting with people we know or getting to know or talking to, both sides are sending out inferential signals in ways that are making it easier for the other to to you know to, to pick up on cues, uh, whether they're emotional or social or whatever, right? Often in ways we're not, we're not wholly conscious of. But but it's it's not like, you know, I'm sitting there kind of scanning somebody who's just going about their business. Um, I'm getting a lot more information if the other person is actively trying to, to engage communicatively. And I think that's that's another point for why these systems just are not, you know, just are not good at what they do.
2: I've had a note there that don't don't take that as, as as impetus for further engagement with physiodynamic yeah, no.
1: systems. <laughs> no, 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 <indeed> you not. <laughs> no, but I mean, but I, but again, that kind of engagement, right? I mean, one of the interesting things about all of this inferences, right, is then that, that that it does then shape people's attempts to do, you know, create more interactive digital systems. And that's a whole other set of problems and a whole other mess.
0: So the the design, the, the fact that we need to feed the beast will actually make a design for more opportunities for people to interact facially with or walking or whatever with computer vision, because they need to get more data. If the answer is it's not accurate, then they might think I just need more data. But, um, but there's more wrong. I mean, one is that the, more data is not going to fix this problem. That's not the issue isn't seeing more people. It's just exactly. that it, it actually doesn't work. I think the other thing that comes out in the is that there are certain guesses about someone that we want to at least in the United States and I think this is the same way with the census in Canada that self-identification is like a crucial part of it. So you're able to self-identify your race, ethnicity, gender sexuality. That, that's the idea. We have a strong instinct in that way, even when it's not legally required, that it feels offensive if someone's guessing that about you. And so I, that always comes out when I teach this in class. You'll have people who have been misidentified in any of the categories really get upset at this idea that computer vision is guessing, even if it's just for marketing purposes. The idea that a database has scripted them as being Hispanic or Caucasian white when they're the other, you know, especially someone who is Hispanic, who actually is being written as white. They're like, I, you know, it is a sensitive subject for them. And so they get very upset about it, which I think is, it's an interesting harm that is not easy to point to. It's just a dignity harm.
1: Yeah, and I think I mean one of the things that that I take as really fundamental, and I get this from from science and, te- science and technology studies, and I get this especially from from people like Oscar Gandhi and Susan Lee Star and, and Jeff Bowker's work, right? Is that categories are always political, right? The census is a great example. The census has been political since the census was founded, right? Yes, the, right. You know, authority, you know, government authorities make putting you into categories and you having to navigate which category you identify, you know, even if you self-identify, you know, navigating which what identif- which of the of the kind of what listen and where it calls menu-driven identities, which to plug yourself into. That's always about power. It's always about how those categories get decided. Who has to take something in the other box and write something in, right? So yeah, so now we've just got this on on steroids, we've got we've got many different identities all over the place, and and inferences about those many different identities, which are in some ways doubly I think doubly troubling. They're troubling because they make an inference about the identity, and they're troubling because they then you know they assume that there's a set of, of kind of concretized identities that you one one could be put into right even if they make the wrong choice. So. Yeah, that's a and that's a bigger problem than just physiognomic AI. That's a bigger problem with all sorts of ways that we we track, you know, we 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 collect data about people.
0: Right. It doesn't have to be through you're saying it doesn't have to be through computer vision that you're guessing someone's gender. It's it's by other things, by there could be their uh, purchasing behavior or whatever it might be. Yeah. Whatever. Exactly. Right.
1: Yeah, and and I think one of the things that that I'm increasingly convinced about with with AI is that you know, AI is only the latest. It's only, you know, only the latest, the latest symptom of this bigger question about classification, and and you know that has that has really that has really been the hallmark of a hundred and fifty years of of modern bureaucracies, which makes it like feel like a pretty big, big problem. But <laughs> but it is. I mean, and, and it. I mean, the fact that right, this physiognomy and phrenology were big hundred years ago, and then for various reasons they dropped out out of conversation, although they were still kind of there. And now they're back in the conversation. I think that just that's a testament to having to think about the kind of normative and value, you know, value base of a lot of classifying techniques and a lot of the kind of kind of numerization that we base our society on.
0: Right, 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 right. This is this is an interesting thing to talk about just as a one example of a larger problem that's going on with this classification. Who decides the classifier? How can we quantify someone within that classification scheme? How is that menu driven classification working and who decides it? And the census is an interesting example in a larger scale, because it's obviously politicized, because it, it's literally political institutions that are doing it. But this is just um, powerful corporations that are doing it and having classifications that work for them. Otherwise, they're, they're not going to use them. I mean, they're, they're not going to necessarily use it if it doesn't work for them. That does it for part one. In part two, I'll talk with Luke and Jevin about the menu of regulatory options they propose in the paper to remedy the fundamental problems with physiognomic AI. I hope you'll join us. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.